Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Linacre College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Jack Beaulieu, a PhD student at the University of Toronto. We'll be talking primarily about his research in Sanskrit philosophy, its relationship to non-Western philosophy, how to go about publishing on non-Western, non-mainstream philosophical topics, and how the discipline of philosophy treats people who are neurodivergent. If after listening, you'd like to get in touch with Jack, you can email him at jack.bolu.mail.utoronto.ca. Jack Bolu, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thanks so much for having me. So as you started studying philosophy and started to specialize within philosophy, how did you find yourself coming to become interested in Sanskrit philosophy in particular? I was in a sort of unique position. So I did my undergrad at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I was in the unique position of being able to take courses related to Indian philosophy in virtue of having Evan Thompson around at the University of British Columbia. Early on during my undergrad, I I took a course on Indian philosophy with Evan Thompson and was just struck by how interesting the tradition was, how rich the tradition was. That wasn't the moment that I decided to focus on that tradition, to specialize in that tradition. How that sort of came about was I started to take Sanskrit, which was another another sort of rare opportunity. We both had a specialist on in, in Indian philosophy, and we had the opportunity to take Sanskrit. And as I kept taking Sanskrit, I just sort of eventually realized that what I wanted to do was work on texts in Sanskrit. The tradition is just so rich and underexplored. And so it was just a unique sort of set of circumstances that I think allowed me to discover these interests in the tradition. Last time on The Philosopher's Nest, we uh, actually spoke with Emily Lawson, who works in Indian philosophy, about looking for grad programs that suited her research interests. And I guess a similar question to ask would be, you know, did your research interests kind of overly determine what universities you applied to? Absolutely. So I applied to graduate school at a sort of funny time in which there was a real lack of departments with specialists in, in Indian philosophy or Sanskrit philosophy. And that has changed kind of remarkably in just the past four years, I would say. So for instance, when I joined Toronto, there was not a single specialist working on the Indian tradition uh, in the philosophy department. I should say there were, there were members in the department for the study of religion who knew Sanskrit very well and were open to reading these texts. But in the philosophy department, there was, there was no one. But of course, now we have Elisa Fresky, Janardan Ganeri, and just recently we've, we've hired uh, Nalanjan Das, which is very exciting. So we have three whole specialists in this department now. But so when I applied, this, this did not exist. There were, there were no real, like the very few departments with specialists. So I applied to a kind of small subset of schools. And in particular, I was applying to schools that were at the very least open or had faculty members who were open and had interests in Indian philosophy, even if they weren't specialists, just to try and find some in somewhere where I could begin to explore these interests. And it ended up being Toronto. That was, I guess, the place that was sort of most receptive to, to my research interests. And they promised me, you know, we're going to be hiring someone. And of course, then they hired all the people. So since then, you know, places like UBC now have more people there. So at UBC, there's Evan Thompson and Kat Pruitt. At least in Canada, the options have really increased, I think. You mentioned there both Indian philosophy and Sanskrit philosophy. Is there a 
distinction that we should be mindful of between the two? Yeah, so I use the term Sanskrit philosophy uh, primarily because the texts on which I work are written in Sanskrit. Now, Indian philosophy would be would be a slightly broader term in that. So not not all the languages of Indian philosophy are Sanskrit. So, for instance, in the 20th century in particular, you can find a lot of philosophy that comes out of India written in English. So um, often referred to as Anglophone Indian philosophy. This is a very, very interesting tradition because a lot of the people who were writing in English at the time were actually trained in places like Cambridge and were very much inspired by German idealism and English and, and sort of British idealism. So they're inspired by German idealism and British idealism. So, so you, have, you have English in the mix. If you, if you think of, of a lot of early Buddhist philosophy too that was taking place in India, that's taking place in Pali. Buddhist texts, Buddhist philosophical texts didn't start to, you don't find Buddhist philosophical texts in Sanskrit until a bit later. So they start off in Pali. So you have at least Sanskrit, Pali, and English. In addition, you might find some texts in Tamil or, or this, um, this other language called Manipravala, which is basically like a kind of hybrid of Sanskrit and Tamil. So I use the term Sanskrit philosophy just because the texts that I work on are written in Sanskrit. And in Sanskrit philosophy in particular, what kind of philosophical topics arise? The Sanskrit tradition is what you might call very M and E heavy. So it's very, it's very heavy on metaphysics, epistemology, and mind. And so a lot of people will argue, for instance, that you can find ethical thought in the tradition, but you don't find ethics as a genre, nor do you find, and you might find political thought. So there's, there's a whole genre that does involve what looks like political thought, but it's often, it's not, it's not political philosophy per se. It's often like, you know, if you want to be a ruler that stays in power, how should you run your state? That sort of thing. You don't find ethics as a genre, arguably, and you don't find political philosophy as a genre, but you do find a lot of metaphysics, epistemology, and mind. And a lot of the issues that you see discussed look in a lot of ways remarkably contemporary, which is one of the striking things about the tradition in a lot of ways is that you can find discussions and solutions to problems that look very similar to, so, so this is best illustrated by an example. So a lot of people who are interested in knowledge first epistemology have recently become interested in Indian philosophy. And part of that, a big part of that is because you don't find anyone analyzing knowledge in terms of belief. Belief is not a central concept in, in the Sanskrit epistemological tradition. And so a lot of people who are interested in knowledge first epistemology have recently become interested in the Indian philosophical tradition. So actually, Timothy Williamson um, has some papers engaging uh, Sanskrit material that are, I think, forthcoming as of right now. That's so interesting that there's that potential overlap and the kind of contemporary element of, of Sanskrit philosophy that plays into how we do philosophy now. I guess a related question I'd want to figure out is, in correspondence with us, you mentioned that we kind of would do ourselves a disservice by not engaging or looking at Sanskrit philosophy. And so I'm curious in what ways you think that uh, statement is true and you know, whether philosophical progress is kind of slowed down by not engaging with the philosophy that you do. Yeah, uh, so I, I do think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't study other philosophical traditions. And there are a few ways to think about this. To be clear, I don't want to suggest that the reason we should study the Sanskrit tradition is because it looks contemporary. I think that would be the wrong reason to go about studying the tradition. I guess the question is, why, why study, for first, first off, why do we study the history of non-Western philosophical traditions? And I think the answer is, I think we study them for very much the same kinds of reasons that we study the history of philosophy or the, it's the history of Western philosophy. 
So one of the reasons why, and maybe this is a slightly idiosyncratic view of, of mine, but one of the reasons why you study the history of philosophy is because it kind of helps you at least revisit the option space and think about and or find kind of forgotten solutions to problems that we're still considering right now. Solutions, like views in philosophy tend to fall out of discourse, not because they're proven wrong. In some cases, I think that's actually true, but often because they just sort of fall out of fashion. And so the history of philosophy is, is useful in that it allows us to kind of revisit or like rediscover views, solutions to problems that we had already been discussing. So it, it saves us, you know, the work of having to independently rediscover those views. We can just, oh, look, they're right there, right? So it, it's kind of, the argument there is almost like, well, why, why waste the labor to come up with that view again when it's already there, right? So go read the history of philosophy. And so I think for similar reasons, so in, in, in the case of, you know, as analytic philosophers reading non-Western philosophical texts, we're not rediscovering the option space so much as we are going and finding these solutions to kind of often familiar problems that have been put forward in these traditions, but they're solutions that we have never considered in our tradition. And oftentimes they're like incredibly plausible views. So we can find these, we can find these very plausible views to problems that we've already been considering. So that can be very helpful in terms of making progress on contemporary problems. But another thing that's like very helpful for our purposes as, as contemporary philosophers is that we can often find problems that we've never thought about before, right? It's not that it simply helps us fill in the option space for contemporary problems. We can kind of find problems that we've never thought about in that tradition. And then when you go reading the texts, you discover that they've already filled up the option space for those problems themselves. They've already worked through the views that are implausible and they're starting to offer you the views that look most plausible in light of a kind of history of failed views. And so again, there's this, it's an argument, I think, often from kind of like, why waste our labor, right? Give philosophers an unlimited amount of time, we're going to stumble upon those problems ourselves. But why, why waste our energy when people have already been thinking about these issues and have incredibly interesting solutions to these problems? So I do think we do ourselves a disservice and that we, we slow down philosophical progress by not looking to texts outside of our tradition. So you've recently had a paper published, if I'm not mistaken, in the Journal of Indian Philosophy. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this paper. Yeah, absolutely. My dissertation is, is focused on this kind of interesting, funny little topic of, of the epistemology of absence. We often learn about absence, right? We, we regularly, for instance, we cite facts about absence as explanation. Or uh, for instance, so suppose you walk into a room you frequent and you expect some item to be there on the table. But it's not there. The moment you glance at the table, you come to learn that the item isn't there, right? These, these, are, these are very like regular experiences. So we regularly learn about absence. We, we cite facts about absence in our explanations for why things took place or didn't take place. And so the epistemology of absence asks, how is it that we come to learn about absence? This isn't, you don't find a lot of literature on this in contemporary analytic tradition. There's recently been a few papers but this is a, like, so thinking about this, about the epistemology of absence goes back centuries in the Sanskrit philosophical tradition. So the paper I published or in the Journal of Indian Philosophy is focused on the epistemology of absence. And it's looking at Gangesha's solution to um, a kind of interesting problem, which is how is it that we can, we, we, so we often learn, for instance, so suppose you just come back from a talk. And you have a colleague who asks you if your colleague, like Alex, was at the talk. 
And you can realize, so suppose Alex actually wasn't at the talk. You can realize in retrospect that Alex wasn't there, even though you didn't take notice of their absence at the time. And, and then once you start to think about how does that, how does that actually work? How is it that we can start to learn of absence in retrospect? That turns out to be a kind of tricky solution or a tricky problem to answer. But it turns out to be fairly central. So now philosophers are interested or they have a particular view about how we often learn of absence. And that is, they think absences are real things out in the world that we perceive. So absences are irreducible entities. They're, so they're, they're, absence is a fundamental feature of, of the world. And absences are real things that we perceive. So the absence of a pot is just as real as a pot for a Nyaya philosopher. These cases of learning about absence in the past are supposed to be counterexamples. It's supposed to be cases in which, look, the object is in the past, or its absence is in the past, so how could you possibly perceive the absence? And then it turns out Gengesha has a very interesting solution that he used uh, to the question, how do we learn of absence in retrospect? And he wants to use that solution to reconcile his kind of perceptualist epistemology of absence with this problem. And then it turns out there's hundreds of years of history <laughs> that I just kept uh, digging up. You mentioned that absence isn't studied quite so much in the contemporary Western philosophical tradition, rather to its rich treatment within Sanskrit philosophy. How did that translate then to your choice of which journals to submit to? Uh, is this kind of work really isolated just to specialist journals within the sphere of Indian and Sanskrit philosophy? Or can you also be looking at generalist journals to publish this kind of work as well? Yeah, this is actually a really important discussion. I think that's taking place in the field right now. There's been a push recently to break discussions and literature on Sanskrit philosophy out of specialist journals. The two specialist journals that are most familiar in the subfield are the Journal of Indian Philosophy, which has been around for a while. It's, it's the founding editor of the Journal of Indian Philosophy was B.K. Mathilal, who did his PhD at Harvard, went to Toronto, and then went to Oxford. So we have the Journal of Indian Philosophy, and then we have Philosophy East-West. And over the past few decades, most of the material that's been published has been on Sanskrit philosophy has been in these two journals. There are some exceptions. There's a paper in the 90s by Arvindam Chakrabarti that came out in philosophy and phenomenological research. So there have been exceptions. But there has been a push recently to make sure that this material is breaking out of specialist journals and moving into generalist journals. So quite a few recent examples. So for instance, Imprint has published a few papers on Buddhism recently. Uh, the British Journal for the History of Philosophy has been publishing material on a wide variety of, of non-Western philosophical traditions. So you find papers on Africana philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and now we'll be seeing some papers on Sanskrit philosophy. There's um, a forthcoming paper. So the, the answer is, it's possible, it's definitely, it's increasingly possible to look at submitting to generalist journals. It's, it's, still, it's still very difficult, I think, in a lot of ways to publish on this material in generalist journals, or at least non-specialist journals, but it's an increasing trend. And sort of following up on that, is there a kind of, in this area of philosophy, a, a higher barrier to entry? It seems like there's a lot of detailed historical knowledge that would be important to like to do to do justice to this tradition of philosophy and maybe in other philosophical topics in western philosophy you don't get that as much so would you say that that's a kind of unique difficulty or a unique situation of the philosophy that you do entry into the subfield is harder absolutely and that's in large part because there's not at least in you know the english secondary literature or the european secondary literature at large there's not an existing large reliable body of secondary literature 
So for instance, suppose you, you want to do a thesis on ancient philosophy. You kind of have an, the opposite problem. There's so much secondary literature that you have to get a handle on. But the advantage there is that you do not have to go out and read every primary text in the original language on your own to you know, have a sense of the kind of larger tradition. The difficulty with Sanskrit philosophy is that that's in a lot of cases what you have to do. The existing, there aren't a lot of existing translations. There's not a lot of existing secondary literature. And in many cases, what translations and secondary literature there are are prone to being unreliable. Early on, I was I was burnt a few times by trust in secondary literature, which turned out to actually be inaccurate. So the cost of entry there there is higher. There's a lot of primary texts that you need to read, and you need to read in Sanskrit. With that in mind, is there any advice that you would give to students who are looking to begin research and perhaps even looking into the future, perhaps publish in these diverse, non-Western, non-mainstream philosophical traditions? I think the most important thing, as with any subfield in the history of philosophy that involves languages that aren't contemporary, is learn the languages. That's the most important thing. Right. If you're working on medieval philosophy, your Latin needs to be very good. If you're working on ancient philosophy, you need to know Greek. Similarly, the most important thing to do is to get your languages down. That's sort of, I think, the biggest priority. And at least in Sanskrit, this wonderful tradition among people right now of, of reading with one another. So the best way to learn Sanskrit is to find someone uh, who knows Sanskrit already and read some text with them. Often people are quite enthusiastic about this. So at least in Sanskrit, learn Sanskrit. And one of the best ways to learn Sanskrit is to read with other people. Second, often the best approach to working on a philosophical text in Sanskrit is to pick something small. So for instance, this, this paper I published in, in the Journal of Indian Philosophy is focused primarily on like maybe four or five pages in a huge text by this philosopher Gangesha. Now, what I discovered was to understand these few pages of text, I had to read a lot of background text. And that becomes very time consuming. So if you want to do deep, sort of rigorous historical work, the best thing to do is focus on small manageable chunks of text and making sure that you're reading the necessary background text. And so in, and often, often a lot of the ways, uh, one of the best things to do actually is to focus on text earlier in, in the tradition because there aren't so many layers of commentary of prior background knowledge that you need. And often the debates there are a bit more high level and immediately engaging. So that's a really good strategy, I think. We've spoken a bit, Jack, about diversity really in the context of bringing non-Western philosophical traditions into contemporary Western journals. Um, you'd also mentioned in correspondence that you had some thoughts on a different kind of diversity, um, specifically diversity with regards neurodiversity. Um, so I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on how that issue manifests, uh, what it looks like. I have some interest, both philosophical interests in, in neurodiversity and disability more generally. So I have philosophical interests in neurodiversity, and I have interests in more practical matters, which is namely the existence of neurodiverse philosophers and the barriers that exist for uh, neurodiverse philosophers, especially neurodiverse graduate students, uh, among whom I, I count myself. So I spent some time thinking about the kind of barriers that exist for neurodiverse graduate students in philosophy uh, and academia more generally. So, so some of them I think will be like fairly obvious. So for instance, like the structure of conferences, um, 
There was actually a really great Twitter thread a few months ago by Devin Price, who is a psychologist and also uh, an author of some really great books. And so he was talking about, you know, as someone who is autistic, the kind of barriers that the kind of culture we have of conferences presents. For instance, travel can be very stressful for for someone on the spectrum. In addition, not only to travel, you know, you have to do all your networking and stuff. And, the, and, and so the, the culture we have of conferences can present a lot of difficulties for neurodiverse people. I travel presenting particular issues when it comes to um, conference attendance and neurodiversity, but also with networking, as you say, being so important with conferences as well. What kind of things do you think perhaps philosophy could move towards or what kind of things could work to make conferencing more accessible to people, perhaps on the spectrum or neurodiverse in other ways, that maybe takes the travel issue off the table and the other issues that may manifest off the table without reducing the ability of the student to have meaningful networking opportunities as well? Yeah, so it's so, uh, tricky. I have I have more thoughts about the issues themselves than solutions to themselves. I think the solutions to themselves are very are very. But these are these are very systemic issues and require a lot of restructuring of academia. But so one of one of the kind of like most disappointing developments of the kind of like most recent phase of the pandemic was that so we started out we moved all our conferences online and this was sort of celebrated at least by disabled people for the increase in accessibility that, you know, so now um, disabled people had much more access to conferences in a way that they didn't previously. And then everyone was like, no, thank God we can move back in person. And all the conferences went back in person for the most part. And and so this this was disappointing. I mean, it's great to see that there are hybrid events and there are still some events that take place uh, online exclusively. So for instance, in the Global Philosophy Research Group here at the University of Toronto, we try to make sure that all our talks are online or otherwise available online. That's really important, right? Because that allows, so for instance, one kind of trait you see with a lot of people on the spectrum is that they're most comfortable at home. And travel can often be very stressful insofar as it takes them away from familiar environments. So allowing people to access conferences from the comfort of their house is is very important. So I I think, you know, again, this is one of the interesting features of of autism is it has a lot in common with um, what we would consider physical disability. So as a physical disability, one of the most important things we can do is make sure that our conferences are available online. Or yeah, or accessible online. So we mentioned sort of changes that might need to occur uh, with with the, with the discipline of philosophy, the institution, uh, and how it's practiced. I'm wondering if we could turn it a little bit more personally, and whether you had sort of any advice for perhaps like neurodivergent grad students in philosophy for how to navigate what might be perceived ableism in the profession. Would you say you have any advice in that domain? Absolutely, I think. <laughs> Absolutely, I think. Um, <laughs> This is really tricky, right? Because I think there are increasingly better conversations surrounding neurodiversity in the profession, but there are still a lot of um, prejudices held against neurodiverse people sort of at large. So for instance, you'll sometimes hear that this is kind of like, so I've actually heard, you know, in in multiple cases, people in like Q&A sessions repeating harmful stereotypes about people on the spectrum, such as they don't feel emotion. Right. That's just simply not true. Or like, you know, they lack empathy. Again, not true. And so there are 
you know, it's probably something like roughly two to 4% of the population is autistic, most often undiagnosed, but, and so there are going to be quite a few philosophy students, philosophy graduate students on the spectrum sitting through these Q and A sessions and, and they're going to be subjected to these kind of harmful stereotypes. So the point being that is that there are not, not just systemic, but attitudinal issues in, in the profession. The most important thing to do um, if you're someone who's, who is neurodiverse is just be accepting of your own needs. So for instance, some people on the spectrum can only work 20 to 30 hours a week. For some people, that's already way too much. There are all sorts of needs and accommodations that you need to recognize or something that you genuinely need and that's okay, right? So neurodiverse people just exist in an environment that isn't structured for them. And it's really important to recognize that and accept what it is that you need in order to flourish as best as possible in an environment that isn't structured for you. You know, accepting that you might need certain accommodations, that you might need to do certain things differently, finding a community within your department so that you can talk to people who are facing similar barriers. These are all, I think, really important ways to tackle these issues. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Right. Thanks so much to you both. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.